I, I was praying much about what the Lord would have us look at, and I, I think uh, especially in this time where, <clears throat> where we're in a, a very real sense rebuilding in a new, uh, a new way, not only here but in a lot of areas of ministry, um, uh, it occurred to me that it had been a long time since we had done anything uh, that was really basic, although you get basic things all the time. You can't study through a book without getting basic things. But um, the thought occurred to me, while we actually while we were in Argentina, uh, one of the great problems there, one of the great dearths uh, that is upon that land with all that is happening in terms of spiritual hunger, uh, one of the great difficulties that I envision is the fact that the people there are not getting what I would call basic Bible teaching. Uh, they're getting a, uh, uh, a very um, uh, sort of a, a, a simple gospel, uh, but not much beyond that. And so they, uh, there's a sense in which they know uh, that, that something has happened in their life. They're not sure what it is. One of the things that <clears throat> I began speaking of quite a bit uh, were some of the basic things that are involved in what Christ has done for us. If a person is a brand new believer, it becomes a, a very, uh, maybe a new revelation of uh, the wonder of God's miracle and all that was involved in it. Uh, if a person is a more mature believer, uh, in some cases a very mature believer, uh, what it does is invoke us to new praise and adoration and thanksgiving. It never hurts us to go back to the basics, to go back to begin once again to look at, at those things that were indeed accomplished for us by Jesus Christ and to come to a deeper and a fuller appreciation of them. And uh, so I think it's, uh, it's going to be valuable to us to spend a little bit of time. And um, uh, the reason I moved you over here uh, instead of all over the sanctuary like we used to be on Wednesday nights is because we knew the group would be smaller to begin with. Maybe we'll eventually grow, outgrow this side and we'll have to go back to the, uh, to the thing that we did once before. But in any event, I want, to, I want to begin tonight with some of these things. And So let's bow for a word of prayer. Let's ask God for his uh, very special blessing upon us and let's uh, have our Bibles. Hopefully your notebooks as well, or your paper, and um, we'll try to lay out some things to you that are extremely basic and yet very, very wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for the things that that uh, we desire to accomplish in our lives today. Thank you for the fact that as you have met our need in a special way, that even though in some cases we may not be able to articulate those things that you've done, yet, Lord, we, we are appreciative of them. But, Lord, we do need to know how to be ready with an answer for every man that asketh concerning the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. We need to be those that can respond and uh, can say, thank you, Lord, for specific things that you have done and to know that they indeed are done that because it's a miracle of your grace, it had nothing to do with, with our conduct, had nothing to do with, with our, even our attitude, it had only to do with the fact that can coming into relationship with you, that the miracle of God took place in our life. So help us learn these things and then to attach them to the other things that do pertain to our conduct and our life and to our growth as we move along. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
One more thing that I'd like to say just by way of introduction on uh, adding to what I said a moment ago, I'd intended to say this. One of the things that is tragic uh, in, in uh, the Church of Jesus Christ today is that people who are saved often cannot articulate what they believe. And um, part of the reason for that is because everything that they have received in the way of of um, an understanding of their salvation has been somewhat piecemeal. And so therefore we are greatly indebted uh, to those that have organized and systematized what we call systematic theology. And um, uh, that uh, systematic theology is different than uh, book studies and that kind of thing in that uh, it is uh, it is organized differently. It is uh, organized according to topics rather than according to the the textual studies. And we uh, uh, there is never a person, no matter how well he knows knows his Bible, uh, that uh, uh, should escape the discipline of systematic theology or doctrinal studies, uh, because uh, though one grows out of the other. Very few people, uh, as they're studying through, let's say, the Gospel of John, very few people on their own will, will uh, take a single doctrine that is mentioned in a, a text in John, such as the new birth in John chapter 3, and go through from Genesis to Revelation to find out what the whole story about the new birth is about. Learning in the Old Testament... How, what what happened to people then who who uh, made their offerings and made their sacrifices all the way down to the place that uh, you have in the book of Revelation the people that are saved born again in uh, the the tribulation period and what happens in terms of their eternal destiny uh, you have that all together and you realize that that is the discipline of theology of systematic theology and uh, it's a very much needed uh, discipline. Now, I'm not going to use big terms, although there are some terms that you need to know. I'm not going to snow you with a lot of systematic theology. Uh, but what I'd like to do is take you on a journey during the days that we have uh, here on Wednesday nights uh, through some of the wonders of salvation. You've probably heard me say this. If you've been around here very long at all, it's certain you've heard me say this. Uh, but let me uh, say it a little bit differently than I usually say it. Let me say that, that in the scripture, there are literally hundreds of passages that talk about what happens to us as far as eternal destiny is concerned. Uh, for example, this vile body, uh, body of humiliation, Paul wrote to the Philippian believers, will be changed and made like unto his, that is Jesus Christ, glorified body, according to the working whereby he subdues all things to himself. The miracle of the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, was, uh, had uh, an eschatological uh, point of view as well as a very practical point of view. From the practical point of view, uh, it is resurrection power that gives us power in our Christian life. But from an eschatology is the study of future things, the eschatological view was that because he lives, because he rose as the firstfruits, we also will live. Not only do we have resurrection life now, 
But when this body dies and goes into a grave, we are going to have a future. And that future involves heaven and it involves in his presence his fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It involves all that is, that is uh, uh, says about heaven, the streets of gold and, and uh, the rewards and the judgment seat of Christ and all of that. We know a lot about those things that will take place at the instant of that uh, fulfillment of resurrection. And that is all future. Nobody has experienced that but Jesus Christ himself, although we know that if we die now, we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord. Yet in, in terms of, of, of actual point of time, and yet you can't really say time because we know time will be no more at this point. Uh, but nevertheless, as we are, uh, participate in that resurrection, the eternal state, as it's described in Scripture, happens there. And we know a lot about that. In fact, people are, it's amazing, because people that don't even know the Lord know more about heaven than you might give them credit for. Some of it's inaccurate information. Uh, they've heard that we're all going to have special shoes and we're going to ha- play harps and things like that. A lot of that came from um, uh, Negro spirituals and uh, the whole black music that comes, which is a little bit fanciful sometimes. Uh, but uh, people really do know, uh, have a little bit of a picture of heaven. And Christians especially seem to know quite a bit about it. Even though, by the way, uh, there's almost uh, twice as many references to hell in Scripture as there is about heaven. Yet most people don't know much about hell. They know a lot about heaven. So we need study in that area. But what I'm saying is there are all of these things that have to do with your future destiny that God has given us in his word. Moving backward, though, to, to our... Our period of time from the time we're saved until the time we die. God has given to us all kinds of marvelous promises. Great and precious promises, Peter called them. Uh, Promises that you can claim. Promises that are like currency. Promises that are divine operating assets all the way through your life from the point of salvation onward. And uh, more than 7,000 promises. There was a a fellow in Canada that must have had one of those long winters one year that sat down and counted the promises of God and categorized them uh, in a book that is no longer in print concerning the promises of God. And and uh, he just lists uh, an enormous amount of categories that these promises fall into. I'll tell you something. If you know the, the, the more than 7,000 promises that are given to us, you will understand that every human need has been already met by the promises of God. God didn't leave a thing out. That's why Peter could dogmatically say that God has given us in the great and precious promises all things that pertain to life and to godliness. And I contend there isn't anything else. There is the practical life which includes a godly life in the practical world. That's life. And godliness has to do with that undercurrent of spiritual life that, is, uh, that runs parallel and concurrent with the ordinary and practical uh, days of our lives. And so therefore, he's given us everything we need for what I call the top level, which is the spiritual, the godliness aspect. Everything you need to be like Jesus Christ. Everything you need to be walking with him in victory. Everything you need all along the way. He's already given us that. And, at the same time, he has given us the lower level, which is the very practical things in the day-by-day workplace. He tells you how to respond to your employer. He tells you how to 
how to uh, be a witness on your job. He tells you uh, how to uh, how to treat your family and uh, what your children ought to be doing and what the wife ought to be doing. And you know, he's given us all. He's given it all. It's just your ignorance on our part and sometimes a lack of discipline that keeps us from knowing those things. And I say it keeps us from knowing those things. You'll never exhaust it in a lifetime. But the more of Scripture you know, the more you will know the answer to life's problems. And I'm simply amazed sometimes at the simplistic answer, uh, questions that people ask concerning the most basic things in regard to how to live life according to what God has to say. And the reason they're confused is often they are listening to TV and uh, reading books that are written by unbelieving men a lot more than they are spending time in God's Word. So one of the great burdens of my heart, obviously, is this, this matter of practical Christian living. And that's one of the reasons why I try to draw from Scripture those things that will be practical in your daily life. But now we finally come to the, very, to the thing we want to talk about in this class. And that is that previous to the beginning of your spiritual life, or at the point that you just have entered the kingdom of God, before you claim your first promise, something wonderful happens. Because at the point that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you had happened to you a miracle. At the point of salvation, we're not talking about a step into it, or something that you do in your first baby step. Maybe you first tell someone about Jesus Christ. And that's one of the baby steps you tell. You tell your husband or your wife or, or, or a neighbor or a friend. And uh, you, you uh, I bet you anything, I forgot to turn this thing on. Is that right, Mike? Yeah. Because when I stepped away from the mic, I realized he was using that one. And I saw him walk up there, but I wasn't paying any attention to him. I thought he was just listening to the sound, so he's such a quiet guy. Thank you, Mike. All right. Anyway, you take that first baby step. That is in, as I worked it through, category one, as far as heaven is concerned, category two here, and category three, the way I explained it tonight, should actually be the other way, uh, logically. Uh, that category three thing happens before you move into the category two and take that baby step and tell somebody about Jesus Christ, even though it may have been five seconds after you accepted Christ as Savior. Understand? Those things happened in a moment of time. None of them were dependent on you. None of them were dependent on you. None of them were something where you had to do something. It was something done. And all of them are yours. And all of them provide what is the very basic foundation for everything that goes before from earth to heaven. And that's why it's so important that you know them and understand them. God did a miracle. God worked in you. God did something that no one else could do. Now, many, many years ago, one of the great theologians, a man by the name of Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who was the founder and first teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote his systematic theology. A theology, by the way, uh, which I would commend to you in its new form. Dr. John Walvard, who was one of Dr. Schaefer's students, and who um, 
Actually, uh, it's, he's reputed to know Schaeffer's systematic theology better than Schaeffer did. <laughs> he taught it for more years than Dr. Schaeffer did. And uh, he has uh, virtually mastered uh, that 11-volume that set of systematic theology. And he has done a great favor to the Christian world in that he has condensed it into two volumes. What used to be every seminary student at Dallas had to read every page of those 11 volumes. They no longer do it. It's out of print. You no longer can get it. I treasure my copy. I'm not going to loan it to you. And, um, but the, the two-volume set is now on the market, now available, and is reputed to be super. Uh, a lot of superfluous things taken out. Uh, nothing changed, basically, uh, but some very excellent things in it. And uh, so I'll just uh, say that uh, that's, uh, that's just an aside, but that's something you ought to pray for for Christmas if you want to have a good systematic theology on your shelf uh, that's modern, printed in a modern way with good clear type and all of those things. So in any event, I think uh, Dr. Walbert told me during the Dallas conference that that uh, they had all told, had sold 160,000 of Schaefer's old set, which is really remarkable. It's outsold any theology books that, I mean, you know, systematic theology books ever written, including all the old classics like Strong's and Hodges and, uh, and some of the Burkhost and a bunch of others that are uh, good systematic theology. So, but he has revised that. I don't know. I haven't seen the revised copy yet, uh, so I can't really tell you. But one of the things that Dr. Schaefer did at one juncture is he listed 34 things that happened the instant you were saved. He just simply went through and, and uh, picked these things out. Now, since that time, uh, some of us have um, continued to study, and we noticed a couple that we believe happened at the moment of salvation, and uh, Scripture teaches that it does, that he didn't put in his listing. You can't expect a man to see everything. When I have the advantage of having 34 done for me, uh, it's not too difficult to find a couple he missed. Uh, one of them is you, you received a spiritual gift, just as an example. Scripture teaches the Spirit of, Spirit of God gives gifts to all men, and the Spirit of God gives a person a spiritual gift. It, it's there, maybe dormant, but uh, it's something that you can discover and uh, use for the glory of God as you develop it. But, so that's another, uh, or just one, that we, we have added in this listing. So uh, what, what we are talking about is 36 things, all right? And with all due respect to Dr. Schaefer. And uh, here's what Dr. Schaefer says about his 34 things. I just want to quote it to you. They are wrought of God... They are wrought instantaneously. They are wrought simultaneously. In other words, you don't receive adoption at one moment and then a little bit later you receive redemption and a little bit later you receive something else. It, it happens instantaneously, simultaneously. They are grounded on the merit of Christ and being grounded on the merit of Christ are eternal. It follows that, and I'm continuing to quote, it follows that each person of the human family at a given moment 
is either perfectly saved, being the recipient of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, or perfectly lost without one of these spiritual blessings. In a point of time, when that transaction is made, when you by faith believe in Jesus Christ, God undertakes in an instant to do a miracle. And it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 50 years or whether you've been a Christian one day. In terms of this category, you all have the same thing. Just like there is none other name under heaven whereby you can be saved, whereas Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by Him. There is only one way to heaven, the narrow way, and few there be that find it. One way, one person, one salvation. Everyone is saved the same way. Everyone, every, that doesn't mean the circumstances leading up to it aren't different, but everyone is saved the same way, by the same person, by the same sacrifice. It's all accomplished in an instant of time, and no one has more or less, no one will ever get more or less than what he has at that moment in terms of salvation. It's a finished, completed work. I'll tell you something, that's pretty wonderful when you think about it. That's why Paul could say generally to the Ephesian Christians that we are blessed with, hear it, all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus located in the heavenlies. That's where the, that's where the storehouse is. The God who is, who is unchangeable, immutable, the God who is, who is over all and in all and through all, the God who is the all-pervading person, who is sovereign over all of the universe, that God has provided for you all that you need in terms of your salvation, so that that moment of salvation, you are perfect enough in Jesus Christ, who is your robe of righteousness, to be, to be with God in eternity forever. It will not be improved on, it will not be, it will, it, that area doesn't grow. Your understanding, comprehension of it grows. Your appreciation of it grows. Your, your, there is a place for spiritual growth that has nothing to do with this. Because the smartest man in the world can step across this line at the same instant that a near moron does it, and they have the same thing. One may be able to read more, and get more out of certain things he reads than the other, which means that there may be a certain amount of things that he can grasp mentally that are different, but two men on an entirely different level still have, in terms of their possession in Jesus Christ, still have exactly the same thing. All right? And if you know Jesus Christ tonight, you have it. You may not know it, but you got it. All 36 of them, they're yours. And what you do with them, what you do in terms of uh, letting it cause rejoicing in your life and appreciation of grace and all of the rest may be different, as different as people. But the fact is, there is no difference in terms of that moment instantaneously when God undertakes to save a soul. You see, the misconception is that there is a, that there is a kind of a gradual 
approach to the thing. Now, I want to tell you, I think people are gradually brought to a point of decision, and even the decision may be a little vague in their mind. But the fact is that when, if, if a person is truly saved, at some point he stepped across that narrow line. <laughs> he did, maybe didn't see stars. He maybe didn't feel better. He may have been going through a crisis or been on his deathbed. And so maybe he didn't have all the warm fuzzies that goes with the salvation experience of some others. But I'll tell you something. Though he may have felt different, though the circumstances may have been different, and though it may have taken one person a long time and another person, the first time they heard the gospel, responded, all of those things may be different. But at the point of salvation, at least 36 miracles took place in your life instantly at that point. And we all come in that same place. And it happens to all of us. And I want you to come to, to really appreciate what's involved in that. So, I want to talk about it a little bit. And we'll obviously take quite a few weeks to get through all 36. And there'll be a number of side adventures that we may take along the way. But I think it's going to be a rich time and a rich study. And I would like to recruit you as a committee of one to invite your friends and especially invite some people that are maybe struggling with their understanding of God's grace and salvation. Maybe confusing the, the thing that uh, we find so often people confuse this business of, of what they have to do for salvation. God did 36 things and it's quite enough. And I think you'll find that out. And so all that's needed is for you to believe in Jesus Christ as a son of God who gave his life for us so that we could have these blessings. All right, so I want you then to understand that the first of them, and if you want to write them down, that's fine, or maybe even memorize them as we go along. It'd be nice to be able to just know these things. The very first thing that is involved is that you are placed in the eternal plan of God. In the eternal plan of God. Now, we'll look at some scriptures in just a moment as to some of the mechanics of this. But, uh, And by the way, when I talk about the mechanics of it, again, let me make plain, it's not as though this happens and this happens and this happens. Remember, they're simultaneous. So, But the only way I can explain, I, since I can't speak to you simultaneously, I have to speak in some kind of order... Um, we have to stretch it out a little bit. And so that's what we want to do. But we want you to understand that it's because I'm mentioning in the eternal plan of God doesn't mean that that happened before the next thing we talk about. Got it? Okay? So the first thing is, you're in the eternal plan of God. God has a perfect plan. A plan laid down before the foundation of the earth. Now, some of these things are difficult to understand with our finite minds. It's always difficult to understand a sovereign God. A sovereign God who in his sovereignty somehow has allowed us to do things like rejecting his plan, like Adam and Eve did, or like uh, making decisions uh, that may be contrary to his will, things of that nature. Those, that's an inexplicable thing. A sovereign God would allow man to have a free will. And uh, so there are some that get way over here and they take man's free will totally away. And some get way over here, and they totally take away God's sovereignty. He can't do either. The free will of man and the sovereignty of God are like two tracks. 
on a train, or under a train. And uh, the train goes along quite nicely as long as you don't try to separate them or cross them. But the train's going to have problems the moment you try to move it this way or this way. And so therefore, you say, the scripture teaches very clearly that God is sovereign. No question about that. And sovereignty means just what it says. God is absolutely sovereign. There is no difference. There's no change to that. God will never surrender his sovereignty. No matter how evil, evil men get, no matter how wicked Satan may get, no matter how much power Satan may influence, God will never surrender his sovereignty. He is in control. I heard a great preacher one time speak very resentfully of a song that says, God is still on his throne and he will remember his own. Now, it's a perfectly beautiful song in terms of the sentiment of it. But he was concerned about the theology of it. Because when you say God is still on his throne, you are virtually implying that there may be a chance he might be off sometime. And he was saying, absolutely not. God will never be dethroned. He will never lose a battle. He is sovereign over all. And in his sovereignty, in eternity past, in what is often called the conference of divine decrees, God devised a plan in a way that we do not fully understand. God allowed man to move aside from that perfect plan and receive the misery that comes when people are not perfectly doing the will of God. And in that plan, he also devised a means whereby his son would come, perfectly do the will of God, and as a part of perfectly doing the will of God, would offer himself as a substitute sacrifice to bring those that were out of the plan of God back into the plan of God. Now again, when people are out of the plan of God, it's not to imply that that was not known by God and understood by God, and somehow, miracle of miracles in his sovereignty, it all works out properly, as far as his plan is concerned. But man is off track outside of Jesus Christ. However you explain it, however you say it, the person not glorifying God, knowing God, as Romans 1 tells us, but not glorifying God, nothing in all of the universe could be a worse crime than to have a creature made by the Creator not give full acknowledgement to that Creator for what he has accomplished. And so man is out of, out of joint with God. He is out, he is out in, the, in a path of sin and rebellion, and somehow God has allowed that. But his ultimate purpose for mankind is for men to be brought back into the plan so that, man, that men can fulfill the purposes that God had for his life from A to Z. And at the point of salvation... You are placed back into that plan and have a chance from that point on to do the will of God, to walk with God, to be filled with His Holy Spirit, to live a supernatural way of life by His grace. You come into the plan of God. And it's one of those things that is kind of lost in the shuffle in terms of the things that God has done for the believer. Because, because I look at Christians today, and I, don't you sometimes get the notion that they, they, they look at their life as haphazard, uh, you know, maybe this will happen, maybe that will happen. I, uh, nobody's in charge, nobody's in control. I guess I'd better take control of my own life. You ever hear people say that today? They talk about, 
You've got to take control of your own life. Boy, that's dangerous talk. You don't have to take control of your life. What you have to do is yield and surrender to Almighty God because God has a plan for you and who you marry is important and, 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 who, and what you do in that marriage is important and uh, raising your children in the, will and ad, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is important and every step of your life is important and it is important who you work for and why and what you are doing in the marketplace and how you treat your employer and all of those things. It is important. It's all a part of God's plan and what God is doing in terms of the practical aspect of it is when we get off track from that, He as a loving Father gets us back on track. He wants us to walk. You know, the, 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 the illustration I like is in, in Matthew chapter 11 where the Lord said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. The illustration behind this is that of, a, of an old seasoned veteran donkey or mule who is used to plowing a straight furrow. And as he plows, he just keeps his eye right where it should be, and he moves along. And what happens is, they would team up another young, untrained mule to walk down that furrow with this trained one. Now, the trained one is the old one, stronger, and he doesn't miss a beat. Boom, boom, boom. Here he goes, right down the line. The other one is trying to back up. <clears throat> well, back there they have what they call ox goads that they use both with mules and, and with oxen. And, uh, and so we think more in terms of the animals like mules and so on, but the better illustration perhaps would be the ox because Paul, Paul was one of those bucks, you know, why, Paul, do you kick against the ox goats? Why are you kicking against the ox goats? You can't fight me, Christ was saying to him there. And here's Christ plowing the straight furrow. Here's the young buck backing up into the ox goats. Ow, that hurts. You know, after you get a few pokes like that, you learn. You don't go that way. And so he tries to pull out this way. But the old ox just keeps going. And so when he does, it hurts him far more than it hurts the old ox. And it keeps on going until finally he learns the lesson. There's only one way to go. Only one way. You plow a straight furrow in the most comfortable position in the world. The position of rest is to just take that yoke and learn of me. Learn of me. In fact, the thing I like about that text is uh, it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. What does he say? I will what? Give you rest. But listen to this. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall what? Find rest unto your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just because he gives you rest, because he offers, he said, plow a straight furrow with me. That's him giving you rest. But if you're going to go this way and that way and this way and back and so on, you're not finding rest. You've got it. It's there. It's available. 
And it involves you keeping, well, what do we say in electronics? It involves you tracking. And when you learn that when he turns, you turn. When he plows the straight furrow, you follow. When he turns, plows it the other way, you follow. When you learn of him, and the word for learn is the same word as discipleship, the same word of, as disciple. And it's a mathematical term. Figure me out. The old ox doesn't give him a four hours of lecture on how to plow a straight furrow. He says, no, get into the harness with me. Let's go. And I'll tell you something. When you accepted Jesus Christ, you teamed up with him. And you entered into the plan of God. God's got a contingency plan. When you step out of the will of God, it's called divine discipline. And God has a way of dealing with us to get us back on track. And there's a lot of things in the New Testament talking about that. But you are brought into a plan that is perfect. And if it's perfect, there is no deviation from it. I have to insert something here. There is a problem today with a, with a, what, uh, Car- uh, can't even think of his name, Carl Henry says, and Carl Henry is quite a well-known modern theologian, he says it is the greatest threat to orthodoxy that we have in Christianity today, and maybe the worst threat in all of history. Yet most people don't really know much about it. It's called process theology. In fact, Claremont School of Theology down in Southern California is sort of the hotbed of this particular new theology. If somebody would stand here and tell what the tenets of process theology were, many of you would just say, boy, that sounds interesting, that's good. And it's come out in a number of ways, and part of what's involved, what it, what is involved, if you want to know, get pull the mask off and just show you what it is. What it is is that God is in process. That that God's learning, but He doesn't know He doesn't know any more than you do about tomorrow. He can't really see the future. All God can see is the present moment, and because He's seen so many present moments. He can anticipate certain things happening and uh, maybe jump ahead of them a little bit. That's why it seems as though he can see the future because he, he guesses pretty well after all these years of mankind uh, what's going to happen if such, a, you know, the, the uh, uh, action and reaction, God's got it figured out. And, uh, and, 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 and yet you've got to understand God because God blows it now and then. Because he doesn't really know. And therefore, he doesn't have a plan for your life. Now, I said it the way I wanted to to make clear what they're saying. That's not the way they say it. They say it much nicer than that. <laughs> but I wasn't trying to be nice. I was just trying to give you the bottom line. That's what they believe. And I can give you all kinds of other illustrations concerning what process theology has done to our Lord and to the cross and all of the rest of it. They've just devastated it. And it's subtle because it doesn't come out as a cult would where they have a following, but rather infiltrates all of theology and affects it. And so you will see a number of evangelical books on the market today that will say God, God really doesn't have a specific will for your life. That's the way it comes out. That God loves you and God and God is sovereign and God's in control of everything. But, but what God is, God's much more flexible than we give him credit to be. He doesn't really have a perfect plan. It really doesn't mean that in Romans 12 and verses 2 when it says that you will prove what is that good and acceptable and 
teleos, complete, perfect will of God. It doesn't mean that at all. I don't know what it means if it doesn't mean that, but nevertheless, uh, they play with it. And as a result, they, they, they sort of say that really, in the final analysis, what you do tomorrow is entirely up to you that God doesn't care, as long as it's not sinful. Hasten to say that. It doesn't matter who you marry. It doesn't matter uh, what you have for a vocation. God's happy with whatever you decide. But you see, it's a very basic tenet of theology that at the moment of salvation, we entered into something wonderful that was laid before the foundation of the world in entering into the plan of God and that we are a part of a wonderful plan and somehow or another, when it all comes together in glory, we will fit in the scheme of things. You understand that? It's, it's like doing a jigsaw puzzle for us. Not for God, but for us. Like doing a jigsaw puzzle without the picture. And, and we look at this piece, and it's an odd piece. And we say, that doesn't seem to fit anywhere. But as the puzzle develops, when finally all the pieces are in order, this odd piece fits. And when we get to glory, one of the wonders of heaven is going to realize how important our role was in the completion of God's plan. Let me give you an illustration of this. Remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is uh, given to us in the 8th Psalm, given to us in the in 1 Peter, uh, given to us in the book of Hebrews, all of those places you find this concept that in the building of the temple, there was a stone that didn't fit. Remember that? And the and the, the stone, the, the builders looked at it and they said, this thing doesn't, all these stones are alike. They, they're like ticky-tacky, all in a row. They're all alike. And this one is odd. It's the odd stone. And they threw it on the trash heap. And this was in the building of the temple. And then they began to separate their blocks, put them around the building, get them ready. Because the first thing that would happen would be that the master builder, who was the head contractor on the project, would step to the site and he would tell them, you begin here, you begin here, you begin here. He would give them their assignments as they began to build. And so when they hear all of the stones are laid out, ready to be put in the building, and the master builder comes and the building is ready to start, and the first question he asks is, where's the cornerstone? Cornerstone? Didn't see any cornerstone. Where's the cornerstone? Don't see a cornerstone. And the builder said, there's got to be a cornerstone we can't begin. There will be no structure until we have the cornerstone. Where's the cornerstone? Now look again. Finally, one of the workers said, well, we threw this one away. This is the odd stone. And the stone, speaking of Jesus Christ now in the New Testament, the stone which the builders rejected became the head of the corner. It fit. And Peter goes on to say, and we, like fitted stones, are fitted into that until the building is built. God has a plan. And Jesus Christ was the perfect fulfillment as the key element, as the chief cornerstone of that building. Without him, we have nothing. For no foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. All right? So, you, 
when you understand the concept of the plan, now you're ready to talk about some elements that are in that plan, and that's where we want to go tonight. All right? First of all, I want you to look, if you will, at Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. You know verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29 then begins this way, for whom he foreknew. The word gnosko means to know in the sense of understanding. The word that is used here is pro-gnosko. Pro means before. It is before knowledge. It is for knowledge. He had for knowledge. There were those, of course, this is the omniscience of God in action. God knows all things. You know, there are three omnis. There is omnipresent, which means God is all present. There is om, omnipotence, which means he is all potent or all powerful. Omniscience, omniscience, is simply knowledge that he had all of. God knows everything. Got it? God knows everything. He knew everything from the end to the beginning. When you know something from the end to the beginning, you are, it's far greater than knowing something from beginning to end. Because the only way you ultimately, that, knowing things from beginning to end brings you up to the present. Whereas you know, know the end from the beginning means that you had to have precedence. You had to have pre-knowledge. You had to know before. You had to have prognosco. You knew things that would happen before they happened and you can work backward. And you always can do a better job of understanding things when you start with the future and a sure knowledge of the future and are able to work clear back. God could stand in eternity past and look into eternity future and see all of the events in between. And in the process of that, He saw you. Now, I, I want you to understand that He not only saw you, but He knew you. I'll tell you, that's pretty wonderful. And you have to realize that we're, we're not talking about God knowing you at the point of your salvation. Understand? You entered into the plan of God at the point of salvation, but what was involved in that plan, first of all, was the fact that God knew you from eternity past. He knew your name. He knew your personality. He knew your foibles. He knew you. And as you'll see in a moment, the marvel of it is, in spite of the fact that He knew you, He still chose you. So he knew, first of all, there is foreknowledge. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. And verse 2. It's talking about the people. If you go back to verse 1, it's talking about them being the chosen of God. And that chosen was according to. According 
is uh, usually the way according according is translating a Greek preposition, kata. All right, kata literally means down. It's k-a-t-a. It literally means down. It means that it's domination. That it, there's it's it, that something. It's a preposition of norms and standards, but it is actually showing you that kind of of, of control, that kind of, of, um, of domination. And these people were chosen, and it was dominated by the fact that God knew them before, the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and also by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So there is a pre-knowledge that is involved. Now, this is this is this involves not only head knowledge in that sense, but a causative relationship that God had with His people. It has to do that the fact that God that God knew, and that if you ask me, did God know I would be saved? Yes, He did. You can't escape that. That's what the Scripture teaches. Did His knowledge cause me to be saved? No. But his knowledge knew. And you see, you can't change the knowledge of God. God also knows where you're off the track. He knows what discipline he'll bring involved. Uh, and involves his active consciousness of all that will come to pass. Everything that will happen. Anything that can happen. God knows it all. He knows the end from the beginning. Alright? So that's one thing. The second thing is, election. And here we have something that I think is very important to grasp hold of. We're going to run out of time just about the time I get started on this. But don't let that bother you because we're going to pick up where we left off next week. All right? Pardon me? Excuse me. No. Number one is in the eternal plan of God. First part, A, is foreknowledge. Second part, B, is election. Because God has foreknowledge... There also is election. The word eklektos is a word, and we get our word election from that word. E-K-L-E-K-T-O-S. Eklektos. Literally means to pick out from. But to understand this, let's go first of all to Isaiah chapter 42. It's something very important. Isaiah chapter 42. Now, we're in verse 1, but before you look at it, let me say this. How God's foreknowledge affects your decision to receive Jesus Christ is never told in Scripture. How it affects your decision, how it affects human will is never told. But what we are told in terms of election is this. Look at verse 40, chapter 42, verse 1 of Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I, whom I uphold, 
my chosen one, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice on the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Who's that talking about? Who do you think that's talking about? Christ, of course. Who is the elect one? Who is elected by God? Jesus Christ. Now, if you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. The one I mentioned a moment ago. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone. Elect. A stone that has been chosen. A stone that is choice. Chosen of God. A precious cornerstone. He who believes in him shall not be disappointed. Who is the elect one? Jesus Christ. He is elected as the head of the corner. He is the elect one of God. So Jesus Christ is the elect one. Secondly, Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4. Watch it carefully. Just as he chose us what then say then in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love god chose us in him god never says i saw you down through the course of history recognized that you would be a believer in Christ and therefore I elected you. He never said that. He never said that he arbitrarily said eeny, meeny, miny, moe and elected certain people to salvation. What he did say was this, I elected Christ. And when you're brought into union with him, You are a part of that election. You have come into union with Christ and the elect one has taken you in the sense under the umbrella. Now that doesn't mean that God didn't choose you. He did. But what it means is that being in union with Christ, you share a lot of things that Christ has that you, quite frankly, could not have otherwise. We're going to talk about some of those things next week, but I've got to quit right here because otherwise I'll just keep you over time and I could go all night on these subjects. So that's just to get your appetite wet, okay? And uh, from there, we'll just have to continue as the Lord gives us time. I'll give you something to think about, probably a million questions to ask, all right? Because, yes, I do believe we are elect of God, but we have to get to it before you fully understand what we're talking about. All right. Thank you, Lord, 
for the opportunity to wrestle with these things, to question those things that we hear, to begin to see what form they take and the shape that they take so we can understand fully what you've accomplished for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the opportunity you have. You give us to live for you in Jesus' name. Amen.